first of all, the source of our right, our title and rights is, is the fact that we were here first, exactly. occupying, using, and protecting our lands. Mm -hmm. And that right has been recognized as a sovereign right. It's not my idea. This idea comes from the old people. I'm only repeating to you what they've told them, to me and to many other people. Good day, my name is Aalia Warbis and I'm from Skelkale, and welcome to the third season of the Stalo Signal podcast. Skelkale is one of the six communities that's united by our desire to exercise our inherent right to govern our lands and territory. Last year was a big year for our communities. Although COVID still swirls around, We've opened ourselves back up to meeting and greeting without masks and restrictions. Somewhere in there, we also took off the mantle of the Stalo-Hohelmuk Treaty Association and declared ourselves the Stalo-Hohelmuk government. Why is this such a big deal, you might ask? I think we can let Satsan, Herb George, and Hulikwiltol Grand Chief Stephen Point answer that question via a conversation we recorded during a Light the Fire episode in April 2022. That talk was called We Have Always Governed Ourselves, and the full discussion can be found on the SXG YouTube channel. We are very lucky that we can share the strength of our people's knowledge in these podcasts. And that, by the way, is our title for Season 3, Standing in Our Strength. We'll be talking with people who work hard for our communities in this season. We will talk with our leaders and our staff, our knowledge holders, our youth, and our business people. We are putting on our robes of power, as this episode is called, and we can't wait for you to hear all of the shows we are putting together. But let's get started with this one. In case you don't know, Satsan is a hereditary chief of the Frog Clan from the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and was involved in the Gitsan Wet'suwet'en court case known as Dalgamuth. This groundbreaking case set guidelines around Aboriginal title and our rights to land that have been built on in further court cases. He and Hulikwiltol, Grand Chief Steve Point, the former Lieutenant Governor, Chancellor of UBC, and Chief Legal Advisor to the SXG talk about some of these court cases and so much more. They've known each other since law school, and it's an honor to hear them riff off each other. Sometimes their talk needs context, so we've tried to provide the links in the notes of the podcast, which you can find on our website, sxta.bc.ca. By the way, we'll be moving our website to sxgov.ca soon, so watch for that. Anyways, let's sit back and listen to the conversation. The inherent right to self-government is very, very personal to me as it is to all of our people from our respective nations across the country. Because there's no doubt that for thousands and thousands of years, we exercised governmental authority and jurisdiction over our sacred homelands and our people. And we know the history 
of our inherent right to self-government and the origin and content of the Indian Act, which was the stated policy objective of the day was extermination of our people to get us out of the way of settlement, colonization, and ultimately confederation. And that the Indian Act was strategically designed and willfully implemented to do that. And we know that through the history of our inherent right to self-government in Canada as a result of the Indian Act, how that right was seriously diminished, where we, for the most part, lost much of our identity as people. We lost our place on our homelands to exercise our responsibilities and obligations as given by the Creator. Our governance systems were outlawed by the Indian Act. Our lawmaking ability was practically taken away under the Indian Act. In terms of the resources of the people that we needed to govern ourselves, that changed under the Indian Act. And through all that time, our people fought back and we're the product of that. And the young people tonight joining us are also the product of that. But we have a legacy of resistance across this land and Grand Chief Point, you and I represent that along with a lot of other people. And we fought back and the Indian Act ultimately wasn't successful and we ended up in the courts, we changed the law and we changed the constitution. And so we achieved the recognition that we've been looking for. And now it's time for us to roll up our, our sleeves and implement implement the vision of our great leaders that took us to this place that we talk about right now tonight, because as we speak, we have the inherent right to self-government and we don't need to negotiate with anybody to put that in place. And we can take back our place on our homelands. And the most important thing to me is we can start to rebuild the health and well-being of our people and our communities and our nations. And most importantly, as far as Canada is concerned, to take back our place as, a, as the third order of government coming in under our own jurisdiction, which is what we've achieved. So the way I look at this is all of the damage that's done by the Indian Act, you know, we. We live it every day, but we have to take the responsibility to change that. And we have to educate our people to create a consensus decision for change and other, in order to move forward. So that's, that's what it means to me. It's about bettering the lives of our people. I really, really appreciate your insight and, and the way that you uh, framed this discussion, because too, too often, I think, um, some, some leaders tend to look through the lens of government to find our rights or to find our place in Canada. You've done the opposite. You've looked through the lens of your own self-government and said that we we don't need to have um, 
a treaty or a, a, or we don't need to have a negotiated agreement to have self-government and to exercise self-government. It simply is there. And the only thing I, I would add is that, that, and so that word inherent means, means that it, it pre-exists prior to the arrival of the Europeans and it's, it's, does not derive from uh, Canadian law. And that's important. That's, that's an important underlying distinction uh, that we now make in, in, in discussions around Indigenous rights and the right to self-government. I was going to ask you, because it, it occurred to me as you were talking that you know, uh, in the midst of all the struggles that you and I have uh, been either part of or at least we witnessed happening, the United Nations now has passed this uh, UNDRIP, what they call it, the United Nations Declaration on, on the Rights of Indigenous People. And it specifically, as I understand it, um, uh, makes it clear that Indigenous people have have these rights, and, and now the provincial government has passed legislation, as of the federal government, to make it part of domestic law. What do you what do you think of that development? Well, I think first of all, I want to just comment on very very important that you made regarding that word inherent. Mm -hmm. That when we went into the courts on Delgamook and Gisteewe at the Supreme Court level of British Columbia, as you know, our case was based on our oral histories, the evidence that we put forward in our case was brought forward in our respective language, uh, the Wet'suwet'en language and the Gixan language. And the first argument that we made in the court was that first of all, Aboriginal title and rights comes from our own law. And at the, the, the BC Supreme Court, uh, then Chief Justice McEachran ruled that we weren't sufficiently civilized to have our own law, no. to have laws. At best, they were customs, right? Yep. But by the time we got to the Supreme Court of Canada, the court recognized that, in fact, yes, we do have our laws, and that, first of all, our title arises from our laws. And you look through the progression of cases, Haida, for example, where the Supreme Court came right out and said, that the promise of section 35 is reconciliation. And the reconciliation is between the pre-existent sovereignty of First Nations yes. and the assumed sovereignty of the crown. Absolutely. And then you further go further into Chilcotin. There's no doubt that our, our inherent right comes from the creator, comes from our own law from our own sovereignty, our own jurisdiction. Yeah. And we have to can, we have to put government in a place to recognize that. And uh, I think that's very, very important because when we teach our people in a community, which I do, this notion that we had the inherent right to self-government, pre-existent sovereignty, and that it survived confederation and is now recognized and affirmed under Section 35 of the Constitution Act is very, very important. Yeah. And recently there was a decision out of the Quebec Court of Appeal on Bill C-92, the children and family legislation. Yeah. The Quebec Court of Appeal said to the Crown, 
you've got to stop behaving as if you're giving something to First Nations. You aren't. They've always had it. They have the inherent right to self-government under Section 35. Otherwise, Section 35 is meaningless. Yeah. So that's a, that point, that's a very, very important point. Now, with respect to, the, to UNDRIP, I think one of the things that we, you know, it took a long time to achieve that. And I was watching Wilton Littlechild when at a visit with the Pope, talking about the fact that it was the longest negotiation in United Nations history just to be able to achieve recognition that we are a people, that indigenous people are a people. That's amazing. It is, yeah. And then ultimately we got uh, unripped in Canada. We know along with other British Empire countries uh, opposed it. United States. Now we have it. Yeah. But I think the important thing that we need to teach our people is that we've achieved this recognition. But the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is not enforceable here. In other words, even if the Crown doesn't pass legislation, the UN can't enforce it. So, you know, we're seeing legislation come forward, but if it's not making any change to the status quo, then how strong is it? So we have to be vigilant about that. Yes. And I think that if you look at what we've achieved in recognition in terms of the law and a constitution, that's enforceable. So, but I think that it gives us really great leverage. And I think when we're looking at that new relationship with the crown, that the principles and the language is very, very useful. You know, that was what we also achieved with the Algamuk and Gestewe is the first definition in terms of Section 35, recognizing Aboriginal title and rights, not only recognizing it, but also protecting it against extinguishment yes. that they, the Crown can't unilaterally extinguish. And so, you know, the Indian Act is something that I think it's the most important thing that we have to educate our people about. Mm -hmm. I do this work across the country. Uh, go, I've been into, you know, a little over maybe 300 communities across this land. Mm -hmm. And I always ask the people when I go there, who's read the Indian Act? And the most hands I've seen go up is six and a half. Yeah. One kind of like this, I read yeah. a bit of it. <laughs> And, you know, what's important there is the Indian Act regulates every aspect of our lives from the time that we're born to the time that we die. Yes. And our people don't even know it. No. No. And when we teach them, they're shocked that it was strategically and willfully done to them. Residential school was part of a bigger plan. Mm -hmm. And it's shocking to them when they learn that as we speak, that status card, card stands for the fact that we are born wards of the crown. And secondly, the thing that shocks our people is that 
we also are born without full legal status and capacity as a natural person, which every other Canadian is born with. Yes. And then they're also shocked that the house that they live on, the land that it's on does not belong to us under the Indian Act. And then the most shocking thing to them, to our people, is when we teach them about fiscal relations and the, the fiscal transfer for essential services for the Canadian public is constitutionally guaranteed under Section 36, which was added also in 1982. And it, it guarantees an equal level of services for all Canadians across the country. And in our research with this National Centre First, for First Nations Governance and now the Centre for First Nations Governance, we know that the fiscal transfer for Indians on the reserve for essential services is 40, up to 45% less yes. than the Canadian public is used to. Yeah. So when you think about that and you combine it with the notion that we don't have full legal status and capacity as a people and nor do the bank councils, I question our citizenship in Canada. And, and as long as we stay under the Indian Act, uh, that's what we are. So that, and when, when we teach our people, yeah. what I've learned is that we need to bring in medicine people and spiritual people to help because inevitably there are breakdowns. Mm-hmm. But what comes out of it, this hard teaching, is a consensus decision for change. Yes. People say we can't sentence another generation to die under the Indian Act. Mm-hmm. And so we have to get that decision for change. Otherwise, we're not going to achieve anything. And it's through education, educating our people. That means we've got to be talking to them mm-hmm. because they are the rights holders when we talk about the inherent right. There's one other misconception that that came out uh, when the Nishkas signed their agreement. My nephew happened to be uh, a member of one of the Nishka uh, First Nations and his mother signed them out of the Nishka nation to join her nation, which is somewhere in the interior of British Columbia, I can't remember. And I asked him why. He said, to preserve our rights as natives under the Indian Act. <laughs> I said, what? What rights do we have protected under the Indian Act? <laughs> and there's this huge misconception that we have somehow preserved rights under the Indian Act. No. Uh, and, and, and this is, it's, uh, there's this great fear that we're going to lose our rights under the Indian Act if we go towards self-government. I go, my God, we don't have any rights protected by the internet. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's why this education is so important because, you know, our people, the babies being born today are the eighth generation under the internet. Eight generations of that severe oppression, mm-hmm. you know, and our people have been just living the sustenance lifestyle just enough to live and struggling with all of the trauma associated with it. 
and they mistakenly believe that there are rights associated with it and that we're going to lose something. But when we educate them, you know, our people realize, I didn't know that before. You know, I've seen when I've done this in communities where elders have gotten up and hugged one another, people shaking hands because for the first time they realized all this conflict is a result of the Indian Act, yeah. not of our own doing, you know. And then the fear, right? And this is why it's important to teach our people about fiscal relations in terms of govern governance. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing it happen with Bill C-92 on children and family, the first legislative recognition of our inherent right to self-government. But more importantly, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal recognized that Canada discriminates against our children by not providing the same level of services and resources mm -hmm. as the Canadian public is used to. Yeah. And so we're having this equalization starting to take place. And so when people are afraid, we've got to teach them how little we have under the Indian Act and how powerless we are there mm -hmm. and how much we stand to gain just simply by equalizing the fiscal transfer. Yeah. For essential services, we can double the amount of money is coming into our communities right now. Yes. Well, I, I've heard estimates of five times more and talking to people who are engaged in fiscal discussions now, um, say that the, uh, the communities are engaged in the new, the, the new fiscal policies to have a gain five times. So yeah. it, it, the, moving out of the Indian Act and into self-government, it's got an awful lot to say for it from a fiscal perspective, that's for sure. Look at the decision coming out on Chilcotin. When the court made that declaration of Chilcotin title on the land, mm -hmm. one of the questions that it also had to ask then was, okay, so this is Chilcotin title lands. Mm -hmm. Can the Crown regulate Aboriginal title lands under its legislation? Yeah. And the court said, well, it can, but the legislation has to say so specifically, and we know that it doesn't because it's been an outright denial since the time of Confederation. Yeah. So the next question was, can the Crown amend its legislation to regulate the Aboriginal title lands? And the court says, yes, generally speaking, they can. However, they have to do so in light of Section 35, and the honor of the crown. And the court determined they can't. So the next question the court asked in Chilcotin was whether or not the BC Forest Act continues to apply to Chilcotin Aboriginal title lands. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when an act is called into question, they go through this statutory interpretation. Yeah. The pith and substance of the Forest Act is to manage crown timber. Yes. So the Supreme Court looks at the Chilcotin title lands and says that's no longer crown timber, that's Chilcotin timber. So what happened 
is British Columbia legislation, the Forest Act, failed? In other words, they had no jurisdiction. Over Indian title, of course. Yeah. And that's the, that's the power of our pre-existing sovereignty and our inherent right to self-government. Well, that's been the case since St. Catherine's Millings, though, Herb. St. Catherine's Millings said specifically, and this is an old, old Privy Council case, goes right back to 18-something. And it said that the, that the provincial government could not treat the forest lands as a source of revenue until Indian title was extinguished. So they don't have jurisdiction of the forest, not, not since the Privy Council case, which is common law in Canada. And that's interpreting the existence of Indian title. And, and if Indian title in British Columbia has never been extinguished, which, which every Supreme Court of Canada case is so far said. And it's interesting with St. Catherine's. They have no jurisdiction over us in BC. You know? <laughs> so it's up to us to put ourselves in that position. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. And, and unless and until we do, then we're going to sit here on the reserve under the Indian Act. Yeah, thinking and that we're protecting our rights. <laughs> and it's going to continue to kill our people, which it was designed to do. There's no doubt about that. All right. I'm just going to get us to take a breath right here. You can see what I mean. It's amazing to just listen to these two advocates go off about their life's work and getting our people out from under the Indian Act. As I said before, you can go to the YouTube video to hear the full conversation and others in our Light the Fire series. This is one of those conversations that can be listened to over and over again, and you will still learn more each time you listen. But let's jump ahead to a question I asked in my role as MC of the conversation. It was after Satsan described the community education work he's doing with the Center for First Nation Governance. Again, Links to this can be found in our podcast notes. That's actually really refreshing to hear um, because from, from my perspective as, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm a youth anymore, a young person, but as, as uh, somebody coming up in the community and watching Grand Chief Stephen Point do this work all his life, one of the really, I think, frustrating aspects has been you guys speak at a high level with terms that you understand as lawyers and, and education that you've acquired because of your interest in, in self-governance and moving the vision for our people forward. But the average person listening, the average community member might say, I don't know what legislation is. I don't know what section 35 is. I don't know what this means, you know, when you're talking about sovereignty and, and things like that, right? The average person is sort of lost. Mm -hmm. And that education piece, I think that translation from, hey, we're trying to steer you in a really positive direction based on what we know, what we've seen, what we've made our best assessment on on the situation and having people trust in mm -hmm. indigenous leadership there's a real lack of trust there and our community members you know a they don't trust the government 
B, they don't trust their own leadership and bound councils, chief and chief and council, you know, and then C, they're kind of coming up with their own ideas. And, and oftentimes it's almost like conspiracy around some of these things moving forward. Um, so I wanted to ask to start off the section part of the discussion, we have some questions from people that are online listening. Uh, but I wanted to ask in terms of the education piece, it's really, really refreshing to hear you say Satsan, that this national network work has started because one of my frustrations has been that we have all, all these micro nations across Canada. And if I live in Skelkale and I receive benefits from living on Skelkale, this tiny little, you know, 160 hectares, square hectares, but I move away, all of a sudden I'm disconnected from my community or, or if we be, become tribal affiliation, we get benefits under being Skokale, but I marry somebody from a different tribe. All of a sudden, my grandchildren are now blood quantum doubt. There's no connection between all these micronations across Canada, never mind the United States. And the network that I hear you talking about is actually really inspiring, refreshing to hear about that. But what how do you keep going and working for your vision and you keep on getting the same questions and the same sort of rhetoric from people over and over and over again i cannot imagine how that must feel as a leader and how you, you <clears throat> going through through all of that because i i find it to be tiring and i'm i've basically been a bystander and I've been an observer. Well, point you're making there is, is exactly the challenge that we have to meet. And that is that our people under the Indian Act don't trust anybody. And there's, and we, if we're gonna do something with their right the first way to gain that trust is for the people to understand and see that the leadership, interestingly elected under the Indian Act, is saying to the people, this right belongs to you. It cannot be held by the band council under the Indian Act because it doesn't have any rights to hold, even though the Crown prefers to deal with them. So that's the one thing in common with the nations I work with across the country on the rebuilding First Nations governance is that they've got leadership who have made that decision and turn it over to the people. So now we got to engage the people and we don't know how we forgot how under the Indian Act. So through our center, through our work on the ground, we've learned a thing or two over the last 20 plus years doing this. And I realized it's about educating the people. So Steve and I are having this conversation because you know we're both trained that way. But when I go to the community, I'm a whole different person. You know, my work on Delgamuk and Gisteewe was working with our communities and our people. So I had to come out there with a plain language approach. So when I go to the communities, it's a whole different approach. 
and we teach the people. And at some point in that interaction with the people, they start to realize, holy, it's no longer just Indian Act BS that we're used to. This is, they're actually talking to us. And this sense of empowerment starts to emerge from people. And this trust starts to build and legitimacy. And the medicine that makes that happen is hope. Hope for the future of our children. And so I take really great pride in my work in the communities. We just we did this session with Nishnabi Aski Nation in Northern Ontario via Zoom, 49 communities, seven tribal councils, three languages. And at one point, as elders spoke up and he said, Satsan, as elders, we totally understand what you're talking about. You're talking our language. We understand it. The problem is the damage that's been done to the younger generations. And we need to address it. And the other thing the elders said was, when we need to hook up with your young people like yourself, because you're gonna be that next generation that take it the next step. So the point you're making is the most important thing here. And that is, we're talking about the right that belongs to the people collectively and communally. And if we're gonna do something with it, then that vision needs to come from that, from the people, the priorities need to be established by them. The strategic direction needs to come and a clear mandate. And from my experience doing this, when you get to that place, this people take off their Indian Act hat and it's quite dynamic and amazing to observe and be a part of. And then they put on their inherent right blanket, their robe of power. And then they start talking about, okay, now this is what we need to do together. You know? So that's what we need to do. The challenge is to get on the ground amongst our people and educate them according to our principles and values within our own systems and learn how to treat one another with recognition and respect again. Because it, it can happen. I know it. I've done it. You know, and, and it's... All it is, it's, is getting to the people and, and building the trust, like you say, and the legitimacy. And the only way that that's going to come about is to hand it back to them, to empower them. Just some closing thoughts and some maybe some final things um, around, around treaty. And one of the biggest misconceptions is that we're selling our land, that the, that the, the essence of treaty is is that we are giving up something that has that is ours 
And so we have, what do we stand to lose is the perspective that people come from, right? And that, that somehow we're selling out, we're, we're, we're giving away land, we're, we're giving away all this, all this territory is ours. And, and really, you know, that, that is the biggest argument I've always, always heard in the community, you know, being on the ground and, and having connections in the community is that it's like, well, you're, you're selling out, you're, you're turning your back on us and, and you're giving away all this territory that actually doesn't have a claim on it. So, so mm -hmm. why would we ever sign a treaty and, and what has been, I guess, your saving grace or the, again, the, the thing that keeps you moving forward when there's so much misconception out there in our communities that somehow we are are um, doing a disservice to our people by signing on to a treaty. And I know that you covered this <laughs> and I know that's how the conversation started. You, you're not explaining this to me, but for the people that are listening mm -hmm. and that are online with us tonight, um, how do you respond to that? That's a really, really tough question. It is, it is a tough question. Um, but go, again, it's a comment, it's a point that Stephen made earlier. And that is when we, you know, when we put Section 35 into the Constitution, our great leaders did that. And I'm always thankful because it doesn't exist in any other country in the world where Indigenous people have that in the Constitution. So we got that put in there. And, you know, we've, it went from an empty box of rights to a full box of rights. And the only people who can define the content of that full box of rights are the people who hold it. Nobody else can do it for you, but you, and for me, me, right? So when we define that full box of rights, which is our inherent right to self-government, and then we look to implement it, then these questions are gonna come up. And now you can address them and answer them from a position of power, you know, governmental authority, jurisdiction, sovereignty. Whereas on the other side of it, the cost of doing nothing is our people continue to die under the Indian Act. So I think that if we get people involved and engaged in defining their own right and then implementing it, these kind of things will fall by the wayside because people will know from their own learning and experience that uh, there's nothing to be afraid of, that ultimately it's the treaty, in my opinion, it's not about them giving us anything. It's not about us giving away anything either. Yeah. We have it. Yeah. It's about what is our relationship going to be. Exactly. You look at the children, Bill C-92, the children and family legislation, the first recognition of our inherent right to self-government, including jurisdiction over our children and family under Section 35. It talks about engaging the rights holders, the people, to put in place the legislation, our own laws and then to put in place the authorized governing body. It doesn't make no mention of the Indian Act or the Bank Council, our inherent rights governing body. And when we've accomplished that, 
we then turn to the Crown, British Columbia and Canada and say, all right, we have our law in place. We have our own governing body in place. And we're giving you notice that we're going to assume our own jurisdiction over our children and family. So the Crown has one year to respond. And the language in the legislation is the coordination agreement. And the way I read it, it's like the reconciliation that came out of the Haida decision. It's a reconciliation, it's a coordination between our laws and their laws. That's what the treaty should ultimately be about. And when you really look at it like that, then it, allevi it alleviates this misconception or this fear that somehow we're giving up something. Because, um, you know, when we achieve the recognition and protection under, of our title and rights under Section 35 and Galgamuk and Gestewe, that gave me great comfort because I thought, as long as we don't do anything stupid, like give it up and extinguish it, it'll always be there. And even though it might take us three or four or even seven generations to accomplish this, our title and rights will still be there because it's not about extinguishment. It's about a new relationship with the crown, yeah. government to government to government. But the operative thing is, is education because our people have been left out of this, this dialogue. I mean, there's a roar and, you know, like I don't hear our leaders talking about this anymore. Yet we fought so hard for it. We've got to bring this conversation back. And I think the other thing is we need to breathe life into the vision that was set there for us by our great leaders of the past because that vision still applies right now as we speak. We're still trying to do the same thing. It's not my idea. This idea comes from the old people. I'm only repeating to you what they've told to me and to many other people. Hands go up to Satsan and Hulikultal for sharing their knowledge with us. This was a long one, but remember, you asked for longer podcasts, right? Thank you for listening and stay tuned for our upcoming season. Remember to write us a note on our social media feeds or email us at outreach at sxta.bc.ca with any feedback. And if you want to download these notes, hit our website at sxta.bc.ca and use the search bar to find Season 3 Podcast. I'm Aalia Warbis, and that's our show for today. Kwasai.